0: Good evening, everyone. Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn them open to Mark chapter 11. My name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here. I have the privilege of walking us through our passage um, over these next few moments. Mark chapter 11. And my wife, Kim, knows me very well, uh, and she tells me that I have a tendency to become irritable when I'm hungry. Uh, she tells me I, I get a little angry. I, I'm quicker to become angry when, when I'm hungry or there's nothing in my, in my system. And she, she cued in on that pretty early. I didn't deceive her into marrying me. She knew that even when we were dating. So much so that in order to uh, help me out, she would carry snacks in her purse so that if she ever kind of caught me going in that direction, she would throw me a little snack so I could have something to eat and calm my my, my hunger and appease my anger. That's what she would call, uh, she wanted to help me out when I was getting hangry, is what she would call it. And uh, and it's true. And I, I share it with you because you step into this passage and the passage begins with a Jesus who is hungry. And he approaches a fig tree only to find that there are no figs upon it. And when that happens, he says something that may raise some questions in our minds, wondering, well, is Jesus hangry here? Is he, is he hungry? And does the lack of figs make him angry so that he lashes out at this tree? Why isn't he hugging it instead of cursing it? But he curses it in verse 14. Look at what he says. He said to the tree after coming up, he saw leaves from a distance, but the closer he got and he examined the tree closely, there was no figs upon it. And he, and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then we're told that the disciples heard Jesus' words. And you drop down to verse 20. And the next day, they, or they passed by in the morning, and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. This, this, this has gone down. What, what, is, what is going on in this moment? Is Jesus angry? Is he irritable? Is he hangry? Or is he doing something very intentional for the sake of his disciples? And by extension, you and I tonight. I think it's the latter. I don't think Jesus is irritated like you get with your roommates when you go to the cabinet, you open it up, you see a jar of peanut butter on the shelf, you grab it expecting there to be peanut butter in the jar, but you open it up only to find it empty and how that frustrates you and gets under your skin, wondering why doesn't my roommate just throw away the peanut butter when it's empty or the milk jug in the fridge. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here in this instance. I think Jesus is doing something very intentional to disciple his disciples with. Because in this moment, what you're going to find is that Jesus is using this moment with this fig tree, this exchange with the fig tree to set up a prophetic parable designed to instruct his disciples about things related to our worship. In fact, when you look at the passage on a whole, it's kind of like a fig newton sandwich. It starts with the fig tree and then it moves to the temple and then it comes back to the fig tree, just surrounded by figs. And the whole point, the reason why Mark has laid it out that way, the reason why it's presented in this in this exchange, in the way that it is, is to show us that Jesus is enacting a parable designed to communicate something about the temple in Jerusalem. And what's interesting is that he curses this tree, then he goes into the temple and he cleanses it. He starts. Going wild in the temple, it seems. He's turning tables. He's kicking everybody out. He's barring entrance into the court of the Gentiles, which is where this took place. He's, he's doing this. And some of you may watch Jesus in this passage and be like, well, this doesn't remind me of the Jesus I've heard about all my life. I'm used to gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the one to whom all the little kids run up to and climb up in his laps and hug and the one who's smiling and laughing. But I look at the Jesus in this passage and I'm wondering what's wrong with Jesus? What's he doing in this moment? Well, I think what we're getting, given, getting a picture of in this passage is the, a picture that should round out our perspective of Jesus, a picture that should, be, that should serve to give us a robust image of who our Jesus is. One of the worst things you and I can do in our discipleship is to shrink Jesus. And we shrink Jesus anytime we emphasize one aspect of his character to the exclusion of the other's. And some of the aspects of his character that are present in this passage are, yes, his anger, are, yes, his holy indignation. But understand that he's leveraging his anger and he's leveraging his holy indignation by what he sees taking place in the temple for redemptive purposes. Everything that he's doing in this passage is to show us uh, the type of worship that he despises. But anytime Jesus tells us anything about what he despises, understand that that revelation, that that teaching, that that instruction, that that picture is designed to deliver us, to deliver us from what he despises. And so as we look at this passage, I want to identify three aspects of worship that Jesus despises, but three aspects of worship that Jesus intends to deliver us from and you see it going down, the first one I would like to point out to you tonight is that Jesus despises the type of worship that is fancy but fruitless. He despises the type of worship that is fancy but fruitless. I think this is what's going down with the fig tree where Jesus is walking by, he sees a leaf on it, he gets closer only to find that it is no There's no fruit on it, and that is a foreshadowing of the type of worship he's going to see taking place in the temple when he enters Jerusalem. Now, to understand that, you have to think back to the Old Testament where fig trees are oftentimes used as images for divine blessing. It was said that a blessed person is a man who lives under, who would sit under his own vine and have his own fig tree. Now, that might not appetize some of you because you don't like figs. Uh, You'd prefer a mango tree or something along those lines. And if that's the case, so be it. If that's the image you need, go with mangoes. I don't like figs. I go with mangoes. So the blessed life is the life of a man living under a mango tree and enjoying the fruit from that tree. So that's a picture of blessing that is oftentimes painted throughout the Old Testament. But then on the flip side of that, you'll see throughout the Old Testament in multiple occasions that when divine uh, cursing and judgment would fall upon Israel... Usually the fig tree was drawn upon to show divine judgment and to show divine cursing. Two examples, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 17. God is looking upon Israel who's, who's lost fidelity. They're not being faithful to the covenant. And this is what he says. He says, I am sending upon them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. Hosea chapter 2, verse 12, very similar thing. I will lay waste to Israel. I will lay, lay waste to her vines and her fig trees. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's setting up his disciples to discover this reality that Jesus despises worship that is fancy but fruitless. He's cursing the tree to teach the disciples that there's coming a day when the temple in Jerusalem is going to experience a decisive and swift judgment. History would tell us that in 70 AD, that went down. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. But before then, Jesus starts setting the stage for why that type of thing would happen. And he does so by telling, showing us, I think in this instance, that he despises a worship that is fancy but fruitless. Now, if you think back about what's going on in Jerusalem at this time, this is the start of the Passover week, the most festive time in the life of Israel, the highest week in the calendar. People from all over the known world are collapsing upon Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel. There's a lot of festivities. There's a lot of activity. There's a lot of movement. There's a lot of things happening. So on the outside of things, you might look at Jerusalem and think, well, man, it's happening over there. They've got a lot going on. But Jesus is going to step into the temple and he's going to be displeased with, with some things because ultimately he's always despised with a worship that is fancy but fruitless. Jesus does not get impressed with the things that impress you and I. When it comes to the worship of the church today and when it comes to the worship that takes place in our own lives as followers of Jesus, we are easily impressed. And we tend to be impressed by uh, fanciful worship. We tend to be impressed by big churches or dynamic preachers or dynamic Worship leading bands or whatever the case may be We we tend to get impressed by those external aspects of how God's people worships in the world that is now But Jesus does not judge the things the way that we would judge them It is possible for the worship service and the worship gathering of a church to be fancy but fruitless And it happens when we are neglecting the things that Jesus would impress upon us not to neglect as a people If you're wondering, what does it mean to be fancy but fruitless? What type of fruit is Jesus looking for uh, in the worship of his people? What type of fruit is he looking for in our own lives? Well, you see three particular fruits that are emphasized in this passage. You see the fruit of prayer, uh, the fruit of faith emphasized. Later on, he talks about to his disciples about having faith in God, believe that God is and believe that God is as he says that he is, believe that God has a plan and a purpose, have faith in God, there's the fruit of faith. But then he would also talk about prayer, there's the fruit of prayer that we should be mindful of. If we have faith in God, then we're gonna pray in a way that that is centered upon that God. But then there's one more aspect of the fruit that you see in this passage, and that is the aspect of mercy. He goes in and he ends the passage about how if you stand praying, if you have faith and you're praying, you should forgive Others who have anything against you, just as your father has forgiven you. In other words, a fanciful worship that is fruitless is the type of worship that we might describe as hypocritical. It's the type of worship that recognizes there's a disconnect between our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. That's a fanciful worship that is fruitless. That's the type of worship Jesus despises. There should be no discernible disconnect between our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. What God has done in us and for us, we should willingly do for those around us. That includes forgiveness. But we know also when we study through the Gospels and we move further into the New Testament that there's there's other types of fruit that Jesus desires from our lives that he's looking for when he comes near. There's the comprehensive fruit of the Spirit. We read about this in Galatians chapter 5 when, we're, when, when it's described for us as love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and long-suffering and gentleness and self-control. We, Jesus desires that type of fruit to be blooming and growing in our lives. And he despises the type of worship that is fanciful, but fruitful, uh, fruitless. The type of worship that may be going through the motions of Christian activity without giving attention to the types of fruit Jesus expects to grow in our lives. Fruit like faith, prayer and mercy, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, as Jesus is walking through the Gospels, there's a couple of instances where he uh, gives us other picture of this fanciful but fruitless type of worship. One, he points out in the life of the Pharisees. His life of the Pharisees, that he, he stepped up and he, he said some pretty harsh things about them. He said, guys, you're like whitewashed tombs. On the surface of things, you look great. You're real pretty in your religion. But on the inside, there's just a corpse there. You're a whitewashed tomb. You're just covering a dead man. He would say a very, very similar thing. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus would make this statement about a church. A church that had fanciful but fruitless worship. It's the church in Sardis. Revelation chapter 3, this is what Jesus would say about that particular church. He says, I know your works. I know the things that you've been doing. I know you're, you've been staying busy. You're a very active people. I know your works. And then he says, you have the reputation of being alive. Everyone is looking in on your community, looking in on your church, and they think things are firing. They think, they think you guys have got it figured out because uh, you have a good reputation in your city. You have a good reputation amongst those around you. But then notice what he says. He says right after that, Revelation chapter 3, you have the revu- reputation of being alive, but you are Dead. Somehow and in some way, they were fancy but fruitless. Somehow and in some way, they were not bearing the type of fruit that Jesus is looking for, the type of fruit that he is pleased with, the type of fruit he desires to be produced in and amongst his people. You see, ultimately, it doesn't matter how fanciful our worship is, how polished our gatherings are, how produced they may be. Obviously, ours isn't produced all that well, but we don't have a big fanciful worship gathering. But it doesn't matter if you consider yourself to be high church or low church, highly charismatic or highly liturgical. Ultimately, what Jesus is looking for is fruit. And ultimately, Jesus is not impressed with the forms and the styles of our worship together. He's impressed with the type of fruit that is being produced among us. And the type of worship he despises is the type of worship that is fancy but fruitless. So we don't want to move in that direction. My prayer as a church is that we would be a people who are bearing fruit. We want fruit to bloom. We want fruit to blossom. And this is my prayer, not only for us as a church, it's my prayer for each one of you as followers of Jesus, that fruit would blossom in your life, that you would be a people of faith, a people of prayer, a people of, of, what's the third one? A people of mercy, that you would bear the fruit of the spirit, that your life would testify to the goodness of God through his presence in you. But the temptation we've got to avoid is that many of us like living our lives or we only want our lives to be viewed from a telescope. We only want to be viewed from a distance because from a distance, people can look at us and and they may see some leaves. They may see some leaves on the tree. They may think there's things happening because they're only viewing us from a distance. We prefer to be viewed from a telescope because that puts distance between you and the viewer. But I would recommend that Jesus doesn't simply look at our lives or he doesn't ever look at our lives through a telescope. He's always looking our lives through his holy uh, microscope. He's always drawing near. He's always stepping in. He's always seeing things within us that you and I are unaware of. He's seeing things within us that other people cannot see. So one of the ways that we avoid becoming fanciful but fruitless But one of the ways that we avoid that is by living our lives with a willing submission of having Jesus examine us to step under his microscope, and then I would add even step under the microscope of one another. See, one of the temptations that leaders fall into often is that leaders only want to lead from a distance because that means people can't see what's really going on in them. And a leader who will only lead from a distance is setting him or herself up for failure We don't want to lead from a distance. We want to be a family of faith who's pressing into one another, who's close to one another, who's looking for fruit to bloom and to blossom in each other's lives. Now, of course, we understand that fruit doesn't just come in two weeks, that fruit requires time, especially spiritual fruit. So we're patient with the process, but we are proactive in that process. We want to be a fruit-bearing people because that's what Jesus is looking for. So let me ask you, do you, Does your life only look fruitful when you are viewed from a distance? Does your life only look fruitful when you are viewed from a distance? Or to put it another way, if someone comes and takes a bite out of your life, what do they taste? Somebody comes and bites into your life, are they tasting something bitter? Or are they tasting something sweet? Or are they tasting something redemptive? Are they tasting something hopeful? Are they tasting something faithful? Are they tasting something true and honorable? Are they tasting the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Anything else is despised by Jesus. He despises a worship that is fancy but fruitless. And so then Jesus, in the next scene, he moves into the temple and he begins to drive everyone out. And it's an interesting moment, the way that Mark records it, because he says, as he and his disciples came to Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So he enters the temple. Now, one thing about the temple at this time is it was a big, massive structure. It occupied everyone's view. I mean, it was was the central focal piece of all of Jerusalem. And the temple was very large, about five football fields long and about three football fields wide. It was divided up into several courts. You had the Holy of Holies, which was, so if you might want to think concentric circles, you had the Holy of Holies where the Great high priest was privileged to go, and then you had a court for all the other priests to come and hang out in. Then outside of that, you had a court where Jewish men could come, and they could worship and congregate there. Then you had the court of the women, and that's where women were able to come and congregate, Jewish women in particular. But then outside of that, you had the court of Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was the largest court in the temple. This was the section in the court where all non-Jewish people who wanted to draw near to the to the God of Israel, who wanted to worship and participate in the festivities of Passover, they would all come into the court of the Gentiles. It was the largest space. But when Jesus enters this portion of the temple, he sees some things that he has to deal with. He sees some things that he has to tweak. So he starts driving people out and he starts barring entrance into this court. And the question is, why? What was taking place in the court of the Gentiles that got under Jesus' skin that, that motivated him to act in this way. Well, in part, what was taking place in the temple is that you had all these vendors who were selling animals that could be used in, their, in people's worship of God who could, be, who could be offered up to God in various forms of sacrifices and those types of things. They, off, they set up vendors to sell to make those available to these travelers who were coming from all over the known world to worship there, and then they could buy an animal to sacrifice there in the court of the Gentiles. Now, that would be very convenient and very efficient. If you've ever tried traveling just on your own with three little kids, imagine trying to travel on your own with three little kids and A donkey or an ox or a sheep or birds or whatever, it could get really messy. It could become quite complicated. Well, to make things easier on people, vendors would set up and they would sell animals that worshipers could use in their offerings. But in order to buy those offerings, if you were coming from outside of Jerusalem, you were bringing in Roman currency that wasn't accepted in the temple. And so you then would have to exchange your currency uh, to get something that you could use in the temple. Now, Luke's gospel would tell us that some of these money changers were charging a ridiculous rate of interest to make that change happen. They were exploiting these travelers. They were exploiting these worshipers. And so Luke points out in his account that one of the things that motivated Jesus was his sense of injustice and oppression that was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. And that's usually how this story is taught. And it should be taught that way because there's truth to it. But Mark is calling our attention to something different because notice who Mark is driving out of the temple. He doesn't just drive out the money changers or those who are selling offerings. He drives out the people who were making the purchases. He drives out out buyers and sellers and money changers. He drives them all out and he, dri- and he bars entry. He doesn't let anybody else come through the court of the Gentiles. Why is that? It's because, in his mind, the worship of Israel in that portion of the temple had gotten so crowded that God's concerns are being overlooked. And so he wipes the slate clean, driving everybody out. Jesus despises the type of worship that crowds out God's concerns. He despises the types of worship that crowds out God's concerns. So it wasn't so much what was taking place in the court of Gentiles because it made sense that you could come and buy your offerings and exchange your money. And yes, there was problems with the, with the economy of it. But Jesus, is, it seems in Mark's gospel, is mad about where they've set up shop. That they've taken this sacred space and they're using it for their own convenience and efficiency. And he says that convenience and efficiency are not, should not be allowed to crowd out God's concerns in the world. He despises the type of worship that crowds out God's concerns. And the court of the Gentiles has gotten so crowded, people couldn't enter the temple, enter that portion and do and engage God in the way that that court was designed for. And so Jesus would quote Isaiah chapter 56, verse seven, When he makes that statement, when he lays out this, this description, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You are robbing people from this opportunity to congregate and to pray and to worship. You're, you're distracting people. You're crowding people out. And I despise that type of worship. You see, the reason why this was such a big deal is because there was no room for reverence. There was no room for reverence in the court of the Gentiles because there was so much activity happening there. Nobody was really focusing on God or the Gentiles, the nations, the non-Jewish people weren't able to use that portion of the temple the way it was intended to be. So there was no reverence there. And because there was no reverence in that space, there was no prayer being made. No one was praying And when there was no reverence and no prayer and everybody was focused on so many other things, ultimately, there there, there was no more people there. The Gentiles weren't able to congregate and use that space as it was intended. See, Jesus despises worship that crowds out God's concerns. And so in this moment, there's no room for reverence, there's no room for prayer, and there's no room for people. Let me ask you, in your worship of God through Jesus, is there room for reverence? Is there room for prayer? And is there room for people? Is there enough room in your heart for the concerns of God? Is there enough room in your worship for that which God is ultimately concerned with? You know, it's hard to revere a shrunken Jesus. Jesus. It's hard to revere Jesus if you only think of him as a teacher or if you only think of him as a prophet or if you only think of him in one particular aspect of who he is. It's hard to revere a Jesus who's been shrunken. If we want reverence in our worship, we have to come to a robust understanding of who Jesus is, who this king is, who this Lord is, who this God-man is, who this savior is. If we want reverence in our worship, we need to come to an understanding of who Jesus is in his fullness and not just the slices of Jesus that we are most comfortable with. Is there room for a Jesus who turns over tables in your faith? Is there room for a confrontational Jesus in your worship? Is there room for a Jesus who can unsettle a situation for a redemptive purpose? Is there room for that type of Jesus in your worship? Or in your worship, have you crowded out God's concerns thinking that God's not concerned with how we view Jesus or that God's not concerned about the type of Jesus we believe in? There's a reason why earlier in Mark's gospel, Jesus would ask his followers, who do the people say that I am? And they get some replies. Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist, putting him in the classification of a prophet. But then Jesus turns his attention to Peter and says, who do you say that I am? You're my disciple. You should have a distinct understanding of who I am. And Peter looks at him and says, you are the Christ You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And He professes the reality of who Jesus is in that moment. We lose our reverence when we shrink our Jesus. And Jesus despises the type of worship that would do that. This is why we give so much attention to the Bible in our worship gatherings. If we do not look at Jesus as we presented in the scriptures, you know what we'll end up doing? I will end up communicating to you and presenting a Jesus to you that looks a lot like me. You don't want a Jesus who looks like me you want, you need the Jesus that's presented in the scriptures. This is why we study the Bible the way that we do. We do not want our imaginations and our preferences and our personal inclinations to drive our understanding of Jesus. We want our understanding of Jesus to be developed through the study of the scriptures as Jesus reveals him to be in all of his robustness. And if we lose our reverence, then our prayer lives will suffer as well because if we have no reverence in our worship, our prayer is gonna become very narcissistic Our prayer life is going to become very therapeutic. If we lose our reverence, our prayer lives are going to suffer. We will no longer pray in such a way that repents of sin. We will no longer pray in such a way that adores who God is and instills humility within us. If we lose our reverence, our prayer lives will become therapeutic sessions and understand that discipleship, yes, it has some therapeutic benefits, but the goal of your discipleship is not therapy. The goal of your discipleship is to be conformed into the image of your Christ. To grow up into the image of Jesus. That's the goal of your discipleship. Therefore, you have to have a robust understanding of who Jesus is so that you can understand who God is practically making you to be like. And your prayer life should serve that purpose. So we pray with an understanding of who Jesus is and putting our faith in him and being conformed into his image. And as we do that, our, we suddenly find our hearts expanding so that we have room for more people in our lives and in our communities. All of a sudden, God's concern for all the peoples of the world becomes our concern. And we're not going to try to crowd out people by being by giving our attention to other things. And we're going to include people. We're going to expand our our circle, so that more people can gather and meet the Jesus that we are following and the Jesus that we are serving. Jesus despises the type of worship that crowds out his concerns, where there's no room for reverence, there's no room for prayer, there's no room for people. So let me ask you are you trivializing God by crowding out his concerns? Are you trivializing God by crowding out his concerns? If you are, this is what's going to happen. You're going to become, your worship is going to be shallow. Your worship is going to be prayerless. And your worship is going to be ingrown. I can't think of a more miserable way to live the Christian life. Shallow, prayerless, and ingrown. I can't think of a more miserable type of church to be. We want to be a people who revere God in Jesus We want to be a people who pray, desperately desiring for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done in this world as it is in heaven. We want to be the type of people who are broadening our arms Wrapping up anyone who comes to meet the Jesus that we are following. Anyone that we can love, we want to love. Anyone we can serve, we want to serve. Anyone we can include, we want to include. Because as we're worshiping God in this way, our hearts are going to expand. And they're going to include the concerns of God in our worship. Whether it's as a church on a Sunday evening or as a church that's scattered throughout this city, offering up our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the God who loves us and the God who is transforming us into the image of Jesus. But then you keep moving in this passage. There's more into it. There's one other aspect of worship that Jesus despises. And it's this. Jesus despises worship that trusts in temples rather than in God. He despises the type of worship that trusts in temples rather than in God. Now you cannot overestimate the importance of the temple to the to the Jewish people in the first century. This temple that Jesus is causing a ruckus in, this temple sat at the center of their life, of their identity, of their worship. The presence of this temple gave the people of Israel hope. The presence of this temple gave the people of Israel security. But we know that Jesus isn't impressed with what's going on in the temple, that the heart is tilted. It needs to be changed. And so he walks into the temple earlier in verse 11. And you get this kind of sense that he's about to do something. Because we're told that in verse 11 last week that he walked into the temple and kind of looked around. He surveyed. He saw what was going down. Then he left. And then he comes back in this moment. And he's doing these things in a very calculated, intentional way as he's cleaning house, so to speak. And understand that, yes, there's holy indignation in what Jesus is doing, but he's not, this isn't a fit of rage. He's not out, he has not lost his self-control in this moment. We know that because what Jesus is doing here seems to be a premeditated act, just like his premeditated act to get a colt to ride into Jerusalem upon. This is what went down in the passage we looked at last week, and we said that that was a picture of how Jesus is the son of David. He's the anticipated one. But there's another instance in that same book, the book of Zechariah, where Jesus, that ties what Jesus is doing in this moment together, revealing him to be the king that we all need. It's found in the very last phrase of the Old Testament book of Zechariah. This is what we read. When the Messiah comes, there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Jesus is acting intentionally. Intentionally. All that he's doing in this moment is by design. He's showing that he is the Messiah. He is the son of David. He is the one who's come into the world to change things. But in order for him to change things, he has to unsettle the people of Israel who've put all of their hope and all of their security into the physical structure of the temple. This was something that generations all throughout the nation of Israel were always tempted to do. So far back to Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, written several hundred years before this moment. The prophet Jeremiah was telling the people of Israel that God was going to come and he was going to judge them because of their lack of faithfulness to the covenant. They weren't weren't living out the life that God had called them to live. They weren't being the people God intended them to be. And so judgment came upon them. But when Jeremiah came in and he began to clean house with his words, so to speak, the people didn't believe him. They didn't listen to Jeremiah and repent to avoid that. They didn't listen to Jeremiah because the temple was in Jerusalem. And so you read a passage like Jeremiah chapter seven, and you find this phrase repeated over and over and over again, where when they are told this message from the prophet, they say, but the temple of the Lord, but the temple of the Lord, but the temple of the Lord, what you're saying can't happen because the temple of the Lord is in Jerusalem, And they were putting all of their faith and all of their hope and all of their security in the temple. And here Jesus is coming in to say, look, you guys in the first century are doing the same thing. And I despise the type of worship that puts its faith in temples rather than in God himself. This is why after he curses the fig tree, after he cleanses the temple, he has that conversation in verse 22 with Peter. He explains to Peter what he just did. He tells Peter, have faith in God. And then he enters into that proverbial statement. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, don't read that passage and start naming and claiming things don't think that that means you can start naming whatever you want and claiming it in the name of Jesus. That's not what Jesus is that's not the point Jesus is making in with those words, especially when you consider the context. The image of a mountain being thrown into the sea is an image drawn, yes, from the book of Zechariah. It is an image that Jesus is employing and impressing upon his disciples to realize that the Messiah has come. And if we pray in light of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah is about, those prayers, yes, will be answered. This is what Jesus is encouraging, I think, immediately with those words saying, if you believe and if you pray, mountains can be moved. The Messiah will come. This is what's going to go down. The Messiah has arrived. The kingdom of God has come. So when you pray, pray in that way because God's kingdom is about to take over the world. It's about to change the world in the most substantial and significant ways possible. So what we hear in Jesus' words here is, yes, we want faith and prayer and mercy, but we want faith, prayer, and mercy to be anchored in a robust understanding of Jesus and a robust understanding of what Jesus desires for the world. Jesus desires to deliver the world from the type of worship that is fancy but fruitless, the type of worship that that crowds out God's concerns, and the type of worship that trusts in temples rather than in God. And it is this emphasis in Jesus' teaching that got him crucified. John chapter 2. Listen to what happens in John chapter 2 when, Jesus, when John records that account. Listen to this exchange. Right after he cleanses the temple, listen to what goes on in verse 18 of John chapter 2. So the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Why are you coming in and cleaning house in the temple. Who gave you that right? Who gave you that authority? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body and when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. His actions in the temple, his talk about destroying the temple and being raised again. His talk about replacing the temple is what got Jesus crucified. You go back to the book of Mark and you turn over to Mark chapter 14. Listen to verse 58. This is one of the charges that was waged against Jesus at his trial. The religious leaders tell the, 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 tell the, the people in charge, verse 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. The talk of the temple and what he does in this moment is the type of talk and the type of actions that led to his crucifixion. Why did Jesus do that? Well, he did that because Jesus understood that in his death he would destroy all temples. And he did that because in his resurrection he would replace all temples. Let me ask you, what's the point of a temple? You know, a temple is not unique to the people of Israel. Temples are not unique to, to really any one particular people group on the planet. Every culture, every people group in the world, all throughout history, has had their types of temples. And temples basically do two, they they were all built on two premises. Two premises, all pretty almost universally applied. One, it was built under the understanding that there was a God or that there was some ultimate person or force that, that human beings wanted to come in contact with, that human beings wanted to encounter and engage. So temples were built. But not only did temples point to the fact that there is a God who exists or there's some ultimate force or person that human beings uh, feel there's this instinct towards, uh, temples were built because human beings knew instinctively that they couldn't just relate to this God. So the temples were set up all over the world to mediate whatever their understanding of who God is was. So it were, there was mediation that took place at the temple so that God and people could relate or whatever their understanding of God and what their understanding of life could, could happen. Well, when Jesus steps in and he does all the things that he's doing, he's, he's scratching that in- instinct. He's scratching that itch that every human heart has because every human heart was created in the image of God and every human heart has been distorted and deceived by sin and every human heart needs some type of mediation to be reconciled to the God who made them and to the God who loves them and so Jesus steps into the world and he dies to destroy all temples saying look the sacrifice I'm making is the ultimate sacrifice no more sacrifices are needed and he rose from the grave to say look this is proof that my sacrifice counts I rose from the dead And because I rose from the dead, you can now place your hope, your faith, and your security in God and not in your temples. In God and not in the things that you do. In God and not in your religious performance or your religious activity. You can now put your faith in God who loves you enough to do this for you. This is what's going down in the gospel. Jesus died to destroy all temples. And it doesn't have to be a religious temple. I know that each and every one of you probably are tempted to place your hope and your security in some other aspects of the created order. Anything that you're looking to put your hope in outside of God, that's something that Jesus wants to destroy and replace. It's something Jesus wants to tear down and take over. So let me ask you, what source of security is Jesus seeking to replace in your life right now? Some of your sources of security have been shaken in light of the election that happened on Tuesday. And I understand that. Could it be that this is a moment for you to relocate the source of your security? To relocate your hope? To relocate your faith? Could it be Jesus allowed a temple to be destroyed in your heart so that, he might be, so that he might replace it? You see, this is what Jesus is driving at in this passage. All this passage is about the worship that occurs in our hearts and among us as followers of Jesus. And if, worship, if our worship centers on anything but Jesus you can rest assured that there are times when Jesus will take a whip and he will work to drive it out. There are moments in our discipleship where Jesus will drive out the things our hearts are looking to for security and hope. And if that happens, it's unsettling, it's hard, but it's ultimately good because the reason why Jesus would do that is because he wants to replace it. So if you are unsettled, if you are shaken up right now, put your faith in the true temple, the true security, the true hope who is Jesus. Let him disrupt our sources of security in the world that is so that we can place our hope in the world that is to come. That's the bottom line of this passage. The bottom line is this. Jesus confronts the heart of our worship in order to give our worship a new heart. He confronts the heart of our worship in order to give our worship a new heart, a new heart that is fruitful, a new heart that is expansive, and a new heart that is faithful. So let's pray for that type of heart tonight. Heavenly Father, would you give grace to replace any temple that we are trusting in in this moment? I I pray, Jesus, that you would take its place front and center in our affections, front and center in our hope, our security, our faith. God, would you give us, would you give our worship a new heart in this moment? Would you make our hearts fruitful? Would you make our hearts expansive? And would you make our hearts faithful that they would be trusting in you in every moment of every day to your glory in Jesus' name, amen.